Mighty One, Everlasting Father, we come before you praying that you would aid us in worship of you this morning. We ask, O God, that you would aid us as we hear your word, that we would hear well, that we would use this means of grace well as we look at a portion of scripture that is perplexing to us, dealing with prayer and impatience. We ask, O Lord, that you would allow the unction of the Spirit to be present this morning, minister to us that which we so need, sanctify us and aid us, minister Christ to us, help us, we so pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Follow along as I read chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Now Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Laharoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. Well, there is a problem that arises. We find that Abram has no heir. He's 86 years old, and this question, what are we going to do now, which is really the question of the chapter, what are we going to do? God has given us a promise. He has made a covenant with us, and he says we're going to have an heir, and Eliezer isn't the heir. 
but we don't have an heir and we're old. What are we going to do? So there is a resolution to the problem in verse 2, which really begins the darker side of the narrative. Sarai was leaning upon the customary legal obligations of the day. What I'll do is I'll take one of my maidservants and I'll give her to my husband. She will ultimately become his wife and bear a child. Now remember, they were taking these customary legal ideas from the Canaanites in that land. As Christ says very plainly, in the beginning it was not so in the manner of which marriage was to take place. There's no divorce. There's only husband and wife. One husband, one wife. And here Sarai looked to the world to remedy the situation because she was too old. She does it in a voice of frustration because she's barren. And basically, because of the way the situation works, she blames her barrenness on the Lord. God has restrained me as the text says, and it's directly antecedent to the Lord. It's God's fault that I'm barren. Well, in a sense, that's true, but not in the way that she was giving her frustration out to her husband. So, Abram listened to his wife. Is this not reminiscent of the garden? Adam listened to Eve and ate. Abram listened to Sarai and took the wife. The outcome creates another problem. Hagar has a child from Abram. Hagar looks towards Sarai with insolence because of her new status. She is not really the first in line. Sarai is. Sarai is the, is the wife, the head of the household in terms of looking over the maidservants and keeping house and so forth, the wife of noble character. But now Hagar, she is pregnant, Sarai is not. She is going to have the heir. And as a result, Sarai looks with an insolent eye towards her. So the problem is given over to Abram. She gives Abram the responsibility of deciding what should be done. And so what does he do? Sarai is then given the right by Abram to do with the maid as she pleases. Here's the problem. What do you think we should do? You do whatever you think best. So she's placed back in authority, and Sarai then despises her maid and treats her harshly. The verb treat harshly is the exact same word that's used in chapter 15, verse 13, about how the Egyptians will treat the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt. By making Hagar feel like a slave, for some reason, Sarai thinks that she will feel better. Well, as a result of being mistreated, Hagar runs and leaves, escapes, and meets the angel of the Lord in the desert. Verses 7 through 12. The angel of the Lord came and he speaks with her. It's a messenger. Maybe a Christophany. Maybe simply the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. But in any case, favor is extended to her. Favor is extended to the whole family of Abraham, which includes Hagar. 
No doubt she was on her way back to Egypt through the desert of Sur. Let her right back to where she had come from. But the covenant God who acts in families stops her and sends her back to her family. God and his providence are in control, not her wandering, which will lead her nowhere. And so he asks her the situation. He knows what's going on, but he wants to hear it from her. He wants her to think about what's going on. And he states these words for Hagar's benefit in an attempt to show her her fault. He reminds her of where she came from and why she is running. And she responds. And she responds succinctly by stating she's running from Sarai. Now he instructs her to go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. That's, that's the right thing to do. She is a slave in the house. However, as we know in the New Testament, the scriptures speak emphatically, especially in the book of Ephesians, for example, about how masters and slaves work together and how they're in different positions and God has so set those up and so she's instructed to go back. And she's to submit to her. And he makes a divine promise to give her a son and that a multitude will come from that son. Ishmael, meaning God hears. The name will forever remind Hagar how God heard her cry in the wilderness. It's somewhat of a bittersweet name. The affliction which God heard was that of Sarai's cruelty to Hagar. So the name reflects that. God hears in the midst of the tribulation. However, there's also a promise that he shall be a wild man. The promise is reminiscent to Abram's in 12.1, but it, it's not the promise covenantally bound, and there will be tension in the midst of Ishmael and his brethren. Every man will be against him. Even to this day. What is her response? The response was of worship and humility from the pagan Egyptian Hagar, the Gentile. She calls on the name of God in her words, who sees me. There was a theophany there, but the Hebrew lends itself to say that she saw a glimpse of God as Moses did on Sinai in Exodus chapter 32 to 33. Literally, her words may be translated, I have also here seen the back of him who sees me. Have I also seen him who sees me? God is the God who sees everything and is providential over all things. He sees every situation. He knows everything that's going on. Hagar ends up having the relationship which Sarai should have had. Sarai should have prayed. Sarai should have called out on God's name. But instead, Hagar does. And it is expressed in worship, calling on the name of the Lord. How many times have we heard that thus far? Noah called on the name of the Lord. Abram, many times, if we've read, called on the name of the Lord. Hagar here 
calls on the name of the Lord. And then we find the postscript that Moses places in here, the son is born, in 15 to 16. And Abram names the boy, and thus shows that Hagar had related all of the information as to what had happened to her in the wilderness to Abram. And what do we hear about Sarai? Nothing. Nothing at all. So there we have the narrative. Now the doctrine that I want to pull out of the text is not in the text. I'm actually going to preach on something that's not in the text. There's no verse here. It should be here, but it's not here. Somewhat strange. We could study the doctrine of names. We've talked about calling on the name of the Lord and what that means. We could talk about God's providence and how that is important. We could talk about God's covenant, but that's going to be more later expounded as we deal with chapter 17. We could talk about God's plan. We could talk about the roles of marriage. We could talk about masters and servants. There are a lot of things in this text, but there is a glaringly huge point to the text. And what I want you to see is not what is in the text, but should be in the text. The text is screaming out to us that there is a crucial element not seen. An element, if it had been there, would have changed the course of the entire narrative and maybe even the entire course of human history up until this point. Such is a crucial element that leaving it out of the text is far more striking than putting it in and mentioning it, which is why Moses did it exactly the way that he did and set it up the exact way. The doctrine is that of prayer versus impatience. Prayer is one of the most important doctrines of the Bible, and it's missing in this text. Why is prayer important for the text, and why is it missing? Well, Sarai has repeated the same actions as Abram and Lot. She lost patience. Patience was gone. She was barren. She blamed God. And she tried to fix the problem herself. God's divine plan. She was trying to make better on it. What we should see in between the period of verse 1 and the capital letter of verse 2 is a sentence saying something like, And Sarai sought God in prayer, humbling herself before the Almighty to find out what she would she would do before him what he would have her to do. Instead, we find her replanning God's plan and sets up her husband with another wife, which is just mind-boggling, to solve the problem of gaining the promised seed. She's thinking, God's not doing anything. I have to plan accordingly. The laws of the land rightly say that if if a wife desires for the sake of propagating children that the maidservant can be given to the husband as a wife and so the maidservant might respectively have child for me and it'll be mine when it's born because she's my slave. Let's work it out that way. Sarai did what people in the church do all the time. They looked to the world for help before they went and consulted the living God. That's what she did. How can the physical, tangible world help me out? 
I can see it. I can touch it. It's right before me. I don't have to wait for God to show me providentially because I'm in direct contact with Good Morning America and their advice this morning because I can see them and hear them and they can tell me things. I should heed them. Maybe I can find fulfillment in a self-help magazine like Cosmopolitan that's going to give me five better ways to a greater marriage or whatever would make life easier. What she did was she turned to the law of the land before she turned to God. And the problem was conceived by human calculation and instead they should have waited on the divine answer. So that little piece that Sarai sought God is missing from the text because the quick fix is much easier to deal with in the short run. It's much easier to deal with. And in the long run, think about what happened. There was an adulterous relationship, a despisement from Hagar, a sending them away later in chapter 21. He had to kick them out of the family and the whole race of people for the Israelites to contend with in their distant brethren by Ishmael, even up until this very day. Problems across the board. Romans 9, 7 to 8 differentiates between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. Ishmael is in the line of the flesh, not the line of the promise. He is in the line of Arabs. And we see the problems they've had even to this day with them. Sarai should have trusted God and Sarai should have prayed. Prayer is the exact opposite of what she did. Sarai did not in the least trust God, but rather depended on her own strength and ingenuity to fix the problem, which simply created a deeper problem. Prayer would have been a wholehearted response to trusting the divine plan and trusting in God's timing for that plan to take place. But people like their own time and their own personal way much better then they like dealing with God's time. So let's ask the question, what is prayer? Because when you understand what prayer is, you'll see why Sarai is so much at fault here. One definition of prayer is prayer is the soul's breathing itself into the heart of its heavenly Father. When people breathe, they do it constantly. If they do not breathe, then they die. Prayer is likened to breathing it is to be done constantly, else the soul dies. First Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Have a constant attitude of prayer. When you take a fish out of the water and place it on the dry land, what happens to it? It will ultimately die. It will flop around for a little while. The soul, which is away from prayer, dies as well. It might last a couple of days or maybe a week, but if the soul is not fed upon the communion of its heavenly Father and redeeming Lord through prayer, it will shrivel up and wither away. How often do you feed your stomach? Once, twice, three times a day? How often do you feed your soul on prayer? Prayer should be the feast of the soul. It is one of the main courses along with worship and study and meditation and fellowship, which is, which is what it needs to thrive on, it needs to survive on. 
And in opposition to being impatient, prayer is a humble recognition before God. The exact opposite of Sarai's impatience. People who pray aright do not exalt themselves, but rather humble themselves before God. It's the whole reason of what... God doesn't need prayer. God is all-powerful, self-sufficient, immutable, unchanging. Nothing can be added to him. Nothing can be taken away. He's not going to be more glorious a million trillion years from now than he is today or he was a million trillion years ago. Rather, prayer is for us. And what it does is it places us in a station of humility before him. If we exalt ourselves, then we don't pray. Not to acknowledge the need that a person has while coming before God upon their knees. The exalted Sarai types devise their own ways of dealing with life and reject being humble before God. People who don't need to pray don't need the Lord Christ. Prayer was taught to us by the Lord in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 and following. And Jesus said, when you pray, not if you pray, a command imperative, something that you will regularly do, not if you might. And we should never be satisfied until we fed ourselves each day on the communion that we receive with conversing with the Lord of our salvation. Imagine a man saving the life of a Christian, or any man for that matter. A man's going to walk out into the street, a bus or a truck is coming, and he pulls the man from safety at the last possible second and saves his life, and the man doesn't even look at him, fixes his coat and walks away. We must never make the mistake of having an intention of praying for the sake of praying, but rather because we have a desire to pray. Remember that cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. The manner that we pray is also going to demonstrate the manner of our hearts before God and why we are praying. Are we praying simply because we have this big list of things that we would like God to do for us, our grocery list? Christ doesn't listen to all prayers. He, in his omniscient knowledge, is aware of them and he knows them, but to listen and be attentive to cold prayers is something that he will not do. And in Sarai's case, he didn't have to do anything. She didn't pray at all. Even as it says, the prayers of the wicked are an abomination to God. And the prayers of the righteous who pray like the wicked are an abomination to him as well. Prayers are to be the outward expression of our inward need to love Christ, to desire him, to hunger after him, to long to commune with him. We express our need of him, and we express our need to him, and receive from him everything he is willing to give us as sons and daughters. But Sarai sought the world instead. And she thought that by concocting a plan that she could fix what she thought was a big problem. But if she had seen her need and known a desire to please God, she would have prayed to him. God sees and hears. That's why it's so powerful in the next section with Hagar that God is the God who sees. 
those who invoke God as their deliverer will be rescued by him. He sees the plight of his people. He hears their plight if they pray. Hagar did. Prayer is never despised by God unless it's spoken of with an evil heart or evil intentions. Proverbs 15.26, the thoughts of the wicked are, are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant. Or Proverbs 21.27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with a wicked intent? Or Proverbs 15.29, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The manner and the intent and the desire that they pray that they bring up such things before God. And in general, there is an admonition for us in this text to rely on God and not on ourselves, which is the point of the passage. How do we apply a text that we don't necessarily have? Well, we apply the principle behind the need for prayer in the text, which is what Moses is trying to point out in response to what Hagar did in comparison to what Sarai did not do. As a Christian, it's our duty to pray because we cannot rely on ourselves. We need the Savior not only to justify us and to save us, but also to continue the work which he began in us and to sanctify us to perfection. Look at our past. Look at all the times that we failed and see whether or not we prayed earnestly at that time. Did we succeed? Or were we the scheming and devising type? Did we try to fix it on our own or did we rely on God? The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James says in 5.16. Not the mediocre, despondent prayer of trying avails nothing. When with a holy violence as the scripture tells us, we besiege heaven, then God will hear those prayers and he will answer us accordingly. That's not an option. It's not something that we just might do only when in times of trouble. But you see how people who are not saved often pray. They pray when they're in trouble. Something brings them to the lowest point of their life and they look up in the sky and they say something pithy. I don't usually pray, I'm not very good at this, but if you can help me out in this particular time, I'll barter with you and do something. And usually it's some kind of bartering that they do. A Christian cannot rightly be called a Christian if they don't pray. Someone may ask, is prayer a duty? What if I don't want to pray? Is it right to do so with such an attitude? Well, Sarai didn't want to pray. If she did, the text would have shown that she did or would have thought that way. It would be far better to bring yourself before the throne in humility, even if the feelings of not wanting might be present. It would at least be the first step towards humbling ourselves before God, and God will take over those feelings, and he'll break those feelings and make us see our need of him, and then we'll desire to pray, and prayer will be more sweet. What are some of the things that Sarai could have done? What are some simple directives on how to improve prayer? Well, Sarai did not see God's strength. We must see the need for God's strength instead of our own strength. If your attitude is that of Sarai, then you don't need God and can fix all of life's problems, including that 
of a divine promise, which is ludicrous. That's what Moses wants us to see in the passage. It's ludicrous to think that in all of the promises of God around our lives, and what he has promised for us, and how he has promised never to forsake us, and always to be with us, that we should devise our own schemes in trying to get through life on our own strength. Cursed is the one who trusts in man and depends on his flesh for his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Do you know who Jeremiah was saying that to? He wasn't saying that to the wicked, evil pagans. He wasn't talking to them. He was talking to the church. If a man was so able to fulfill the requirements and plan of God without God's help, Christ would have never come to the earth to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you really think about it, Sarai's problem was that she had a faulty view of God. She was a deist for a little while. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world and then left it to run on its own power. And Sarai did that. Jesus Christ, though, is not a deist. Because God knows humankind cannot do anything on their own. That's why Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. We need God. We need Christ. Whenever we witness to someone, we're attempting to show them the need they have for Christ because they cannot live out and fulfill life in abundance, pleasing to God, on their own, though they're deceived into thinking so. That's why Jesus says it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, because he has everything that he so thinks is sufficient for this life. What does he need? Bill Gates said, what else, why do I need God? Why? We need to rest on the finished and completed work of Christ and his cross and resurrection every day of our lives. And the only difference that there is between us and the pagan is that we are acknowledging it because God has made us to differ. But if we fall back into our pagan ways when we think that we don't need Christ and we don't pray, we do what Sarai did. And what did she do? She relied on herself. The whole point of prayer is to go to the high priest, bringing our praises, our petitions to him, and he'll bring it to God as our mediator. And we need a mediator to get to God, and ironically, the mediator is God himself. We have to see the need of God's strength instead of our own. Secondly, if you want to learn how to pray, go read the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Make part of your prayer time to read a psalm and follow the Psalms. The Psalms are full of all sorts of prayers in all sorts of circumstances. Jesus, when he gave the Lord's Prayer to us, gave us a manner of how to pray, not what to pray. And basically, the Lord's Prayer is the Psalms in a meatball. You ever make meatballs? Take the meat, put it in the bowl, put the eggs in and the breadcrumbs in and all the different things that you put together and you mush it around and you make a big meatball. Well, if you take the Psalms and you turn it into a meatball, you get the Lord's Prayer. Jesus wants us to look at all of these different aspects of what prayer consists of, and reading through or praying through some of the prayers that God has so given us to read through and pray through will increase our prayer time and see the dependence that the psalmists had on God. 
you also want to find a place that you will be undisturbed by the world. Let the phone ring. Let the cat or dog out of the house. Whatever it is that has to happen to have a good time of prayer and a good place of prayer, make that happen. It's not trivial to do that. Don't go into your prayer closet at 11 o'clock p.m. at the end of the day if you're used to going to bed at 11.30. You want to have a time when your mind and your affections are the fullest and most alive to make prayer the fullest and most alive to God. Christ deserves to be honored by the best appointments of the saints. That means that we have to choose a time that's best. And don't just make it a time of giving Christ a petition list. I need this, I need this, I need this. It should be a time wrapped in thanksgiving, in praise, in worship, more than necessarily a time of need and want. What would Sarai's prayer have been like if she had relied on God? Oh Lord, I'm barren, but... The rest of the time would have been praising God for his word. Praising God for his word to her husband. A direct communication of the promise to them. I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but I know that you're going to do it. Prayer is the soul's communion. And there, in the closet of prayer, the soul bears itself to Christ and shows Christ how much it wants to submit to his will and how much it loves what he did for him. Prayer becomes tedious and boring when it's monotonous. Many times, that is why people don't pray. They tell God what they want, but that's not prayer. Not just telling God all the time what they want. This is what I want. You do that long enough, it'll get monotonous. I keep telling you the same things. Instead, we have to pray in the Spirit. I will also pray in the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 14, 15. It's as if Christ is the telephone wire and the Spirit is the telephone. We have to pray in a certain manner. When the Spirit draws us to pray, we must follow him willingly and pray for the Spirit's guidance in prayer, in which he will testify to our spirits as to what we should pray for and how, should we, how we should give thanksgiving to him. In reality, we often don't know how to pray to a great extent. We don't often have a problem praying when we need something. Or when things are bad, many people speak forth some of the most eloquent prayers when life's turmoils are all around them. Tribulation often births great prayers. They express the bad quite well, but they also need to express the good as well. God is not just our lackey in prayer. When you go away from your prayer closet, ask yourself, did I honor Christ by resting on him? How did I honor him? Instead, we have to take prayer in a certain manner, in a certain disposition, in a way that Sarai did not. Sarai looked to the world to fix her problem. And this is most important for last. If we aren't saved, if we aren't regenerate, we obviously cannot truly pray. But imagine being regenerate and saved, and being a Christian, and then turning to the world for answers. The sermon is built on an inferred text that should exist, but it doesn't. But we have to ask ourselves, which again is Moses' point, what are you? Are you impatient that you would so turn to the world 
for answers to life's problems, or are you turning to him in prayer, as Hagar did? Be like the Gentile. When you're impatient and turn in your doubt and anxiety to careless plans, rather than crying out to the one who sees and hears, the only one who can help, then the lesson should be very clear. That's why Paul rebukes the Galatians just in general about the manner in which their salvation worked. He says in Galatians 3.3, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? This is exactly the lesson that's going on in this passage. Presumption and distrust are the two biggest problems that arise because of a lack of prayer that we may have. Presumption moves to be practical antinomianism. It's what it actually becomes. Distrust moves us to relieve ourselves from our present distress by our own power, our own concocting. And a strange part about it is not only did it affect Sarai, but her sin even affected her husband's good judgment. Think about what he did. Not only did he listen to her and he gave in to whatever seems best to you, but he even slept with Hagar. Instead, Sarai and Abram should have trusted God's word. Hagar did. When the angel of the Lord came to her and spoke to her and said, this is what's going to happen, what did she do? I don't believe you, I'm still going off to Egypt. No. She went back. And the text says that Abram named his son Ishmael, which means she told them everything that went on. And Sarai doesn't say a word. There's no more in the text about her, about that situation, until later when we find Ishmael being cast out in chapter 21 as a result of Sarai seeing a crazy thing that she did, and now the problems that were arising. And it's so interesting to see, at that point, Abram's skepticism about what his wife is saying to him then, thinking back to what she told him here, and yet God had to go to Abraham and say, listen, no, really, what Sarai is telling you, you need to do because it's from me. All of that, though, is trusting God's word, waiting for the reality of the promises through God's providence. We never adopt the foolishness of the world for expediency's sake, because that will only complicate matters and bring greater hardship. No matter what trials come upon us, no matter what happens, we have to serve the God who sees us and hears us if we pray. We should be, as Moses so is demonstrating in this passage, like Hagar, not like Sarai. So the difference in this passage for us this morning is the difference between relying on the world and being impatient and concocting our own plans and relying on God prayerfully, thoughtfully, and waiting on him to direct us in all of our steps. Very simple, but where do we often fall? Where do we often wind up? Let it be that we would fall in the same place that Hagar did, with the God who sees and the God who hears. Let's pray together. Mighty Lord and everlasting Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the implications of the text itself, the narrative that demonstrates to us the difference between being impatient and relying on the world, and then humility in prayer and calling on the name of the Lord, because truly you are the God who sees and hears, regardless of the situation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would aid all of us, that we would pray well each day, relying on you and not just our own devices, not trying to get through the day on our own strength, even if that is the smallest, most trivial aspect of of this whole point. We do not rely on our own strength, God. We rely on you. Help us to do so. Let us pray fervently, trusting in your word, trusting that you won't leave us or forsake us, trusting that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, trusting that in praying always, in praying without ceasing, that we would rejoice in you and all of the work that you do in our lives, making your will known to us in the scriptures as we trust your word. That is what Sarai and Abram should have done. Hagar did. You spoke to her. She trusted. Help us to do so, O Lord. We so ask for your grace in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.